This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Dr. Howard Erick on raising a gender-stable child. Dr. Erick is a retired pastor of counseling at Briarwood Presbyterian Church and currently serves as the director of the Doctor of Ministry program in biblical counseling at Birmingham Theological Seminary and as a professor for Masters University of Divinity. This episode was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2023 General Assembly and sponsored by Covenant College. Let's listen as Dr. Erick shares wisdom and advice for raising gender-stable children. Thank you. It's good to be here with you today. As he said, I've probably logged now somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40,000 hours of sitting behind a desk and sitting with people and counseling. There isn't much that doesn't go across your, your office at one time or another. I assigned myself this subject, quite honestly, because I wanted to develop it. And so he was asking me uh, how much time I needed and how many questions and all those kind of things. And I said, well, I started out with 59 PowerPoints. And I realized there's no way you can cover all that. So you're going to get the distillation of, of the thinking that goes behind this. And I think that will give you the essence of what I want to communicate this afternoon. There's a lot... I'm not presenting, I'm not talking about all the causes behind this phenomena that we deal with today, and they are numerous. One of the most common ones are broken families and all the things that go with broken families, though that by far is not the only one. So let's dig right in and think our way along and uh, hopefully uh, benefit you today and you'll have some idea of how to to help folks that come across your path, perhaps help some of you and your family situations. I don't know of many families who are not touched by this phenomena in one place or another. My recently deceased pastor would put this in terms of raising gender-stable children in biblical perspective. That was one of Harry's uh, coin phrases that showed up in almost every sermon title he had. It was in biblical perspective. I have a deep appreciation for Harry and the things that he taught and the way he taught them. 
So I just thought it was to honor him a little bit to include that in my, in my initial title. What do parents do to keep children from drifting from God's design? <clears throat> that statement is very purposeful because we're not going to talk just about gender issues here. But I want you to see this falls in a broader context. Parents must recognize the cultural shift and address the challenges. We live in a society that is, <clears throat> has been moving from Judeo-Christian to existential amoral framework. It comes up in education. It comes up in relationships. It comes up in parenting. It comes up even in theological education. There's a progressive transition, and it's been going on for a long time. We live in a world where your kid can pretend to be an Indian, but a man can pretend to be a woman. Somebody posted on a, on a Facebook, and I picked it up, and I thought, that's an interesting way to pose the dilemma in which we live today. But it isn't just today. It's been going on my lifetime. I'm, I'm 84 years old, so I've lived long enough to watch this progression over the years. Now, I didn't live in the Roaring Twenties, but you can go back to the Roaring Twenties and you begin to see the development of this phenomenon. Then came the Great Depression. Then came the Great War of the 40s and the ascension of popular psychology. Then came the sexual revolution of the 50s and 60s. Then the electronic challenges of the 70s through the 2000s. And then the LBGQ plus gender dysphoria phenomena of the 21st century. It's progressive, you can trace it, and it and helps you see where we are today. Secular and Christian approaches to preventing drug and alcohol addiction. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a little summary of some of the things that I researched and followed in the development of my thinking in this presentation. <clears throat> Excuse me. I decided to look at the material out there in terms of raising a drug-free child. Have you heard that phrase before? And then you can look at that from the secular standpoint. You can look at it from the uh, theological standpoint or the Christian standpoint. And I looked at it as well from a Jewish standpoint. And I found a very interesting phenomena, a very interesting pattern, perhaps would be a better word. I'm going to put a book up here in a minute that is, you can go grab it off of Amazon. And I actually, it's a secular book, but I'd recommend you get it and read it if you're interested in this kind of subject at all. But when I went through Califano's book, which is what I'm going to put up here in a minute, 
And then I looked at Mark Shaw's book from a Christian perspective. And then I looked at some, a Jewish organization and their presentation on how to raise a drug-free child. Very interesting, because what I found, though it didn't surprise me, what I found is that each organization, each framework, lays out a set of principles that are very close to what each of the others lays out. I was in a meeting with the chaplains the last three days, and John Trent was the speaker. And I got a, had a chance to have a conversation with John just before I left here earlier today. And <clears throat> he went a little different route than I did. I, I went through the biblical counseling framework and developed my, my counseling training through that, that, that pathway. He went through the uh, marriage and family therapy, <clears throat> therapy PhD from North Texas University. And we were comparing notes and talking about this very commonality you see in the secular, secular literature and the Christian literature. And John, John, now he comes from that framework, and his comment to me was, yes, it is interesting, he said, because most of the good things that are presented in that framework are pretty much borrowed from the Bible. I have found the same thing over the years. I don't have my PhD in that arena. I, I have everything but a dissertation completed in clinical psych along with my theological training. And I have found the same thing over the years. The best things you find over here in the secular arena are really pretty much borrowed from a biblical thinking and a biblical frame of reference, even though they may never look at the Bible. They look at natural revelation, study it carefully and abstract from it, commonalities. And those commonalities uh, <clears throat> begin to look pretty much alike on both sides. That's what you find when you look at these, uh, these works on developing a drug-free child. Califano, <clears throat> who was at one point uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services for the U.S. government, <clears throat> wrote this, <clears throat> this book, How to Raise a Drug-Free Child. It's a very popular self-help book. The first 30 pages of the book look a whole lot like Mark Shaw's book from a Christian perspective on how to raise a drug-free child. They're very common. And I'll put Mark's book up next. <clears throat> What is significant about the parallel? The first 30 pages of California's book outlines the basic, his basic prescription. There's a significant parallel to Shaw's Christian approach. California's research illustrates the product of such parenting on the next slide. And here's what he concludes in his book. Nearly every child will be offered drugs or alcohol before graduating high school. And excessive drinking is common on most colleges. But the good news is that a child who gets to age 21 without smoking or using illegal drugs or abusing alcohol or prescription drugs is virtually certain never to do so. 
While most young people will not reach age 21 without being confronted with even, <clears throat> or even enticed by gender confusion, the young person raised in a home practicing full orb parenting is unlikely to adopt gender, gender confusion. And I would say your best defense is the good offense of biblical sound parenting. So there's a 10-pronged approach for raising confident children with an appropriate sexual identities. Being a, be a parent, not a pal. Later you will become a pal. I'm a very privileged man to have the kind of relationship with my son that I have. It wasn't always smooth growing up. He had his struggles, and we had to walk beside him through those struggles. <clears throat> but he grew up to be a very fine man, runs and owns his own business today. We happen to live in the same city, not all that usual these days, but we happen to do so. And most every morning, he and I have talked for maybe 20, 30 minutes, and he'll give me the privilege of interacting with him on business relationships, interacting with him on how to handle uh, various things he comes upon. And we have those kinds of conversations rather frequently, as well as spiritual conversations and sharing things from the Word. Those things today equal what I would say, we are pals today, we are friends today. It's not always that way during the growing up years. You have to be a parent. And you have to do the things that parents need to do in order to cultivate that kind of relationship later in life. There's another thing I said to John this morning in our discussion after his presentation. How many have ever seen John Trent make a presentation? Any of you? Well, I told my wife, this man's an entertainer. He's not just an educator. <clears throat> he wrote that book some years ago in which he had four personality types, and he used various animals to portray those personality types. And during his presentation to this group of chaplains over the last three days, he has, a, he has four puppets like up there with the, that characterize these four animals. And he uses them to go back and forth and demonstrate the, the uh, interchange between the various personalities. It's a kind of a fascinating presentation. I find it, found it very enjoyable and he communicated very effectively and he got people doing a lot of laughing in the process. Um, I'm not a comedian, he is. I'm not an entertainer, he is. And I wish I were, but I'm not. <laughs> That's not my personality. But it, it was a valuable lesson just listening to him and his presentation. So we were chatting afterwards in light of the presentation he made this morning and I, in which he was emphasizing my words, not his. He was emphasizing getting connected and staying connected to your child. And I said, well, John, I said, my, those are my words, connected. I said, that's not what the word you used this morning, but I said, I've been really 
emphasized that the last eight or ten years in my classes. And I thought, I'd like to put it this way. When you cut the umbilical cord, connect the emotional cord, and never let it get cut. I've had the privilege of working with lots of families. I went back to work in January because the man who took my place when I retired decided to retire. So I went, I went back to be interim in his place while we searched for a new director of counseling at our church. Since beginning of January, I've had multiple cases, and I've seen at least two cases where the <clears throat> the folks had serious parenting issues. And they have basically boiled down to the fact they lost that connection with their kids. And today, when you lose your connection with your kids today, guess who takes over? More than ever before, their peers take over on social media. And that becomes the standard, that becomes the basis of thinking, that becomes the basis of choices you make, that becomes the basis of the way they begin to sort through the, the temptations and the frustrations of their lives. So I really work at helping people get connected, stay connected. Now the problem is when the connection gets broken, it gets really hard to put it back together. It takes a lot of humility on the parent part to begin to reconcile that connection and be able to be, have the kind of influence again that you want to have as a parent. So how do we do this kind of parenting that helps us raise a gender-stable child or a drug-free child or whatever the case may be? How do we go about doing it. And I'd like to suggest to you today what I call total parenting is more than siring, birthing, and providential, uh, providing rather sustenance. There are ten essentials that I think will help you and help anybody else that you're working with begin to structure an environment within the family structure that raises what John Trent called this morning a confident child. And a confident child is one who is not very easily bending to peer pressure, peer thinking, and cultural thinking of the day. So let's walk through these. This is the essence of what I have to say. That I could give you all the statistical and all the other background stuff, but I think this is the most important part of what I can say and help with this particular issue. The first one is talking. Conversational, age-appropriate talking. Taking time to be with that child and talk to that child at age-appropriate levels. And for dads, a lot of times, this is hard. 
I grew up in a home, old style, uh, very sterile German background. My father only went through the fourth grade. That wasn't his fault, it was the reality of his life. His father was killed and he actually went to work at either 12 or 14, I forget which, he, he went to work in a hat factory. Working with men 25, 30, 40, 50 years old. Doing a 10 hour shift, five days a week. His father before him was killed, before he was killed, worked as a hod carrier. If you don't know what a hod carrier is, think of this building here and brick masons, before we had all this hydraulic equipment, brick masons up there on the scaffolding, laying brick, and a man with a pole and a box on it, on his shoulder, filled with wet concrete, climbing up the ladder to feed mud to the bricklayers. That's what his dad did. Five days, oh, five and a half days a week. My dad and I were not very close. He was, he was, in spite of his lack of education, he was a perfectionist. You had to do everything right, and I could never do it right. So it was always a word of criticism. It was pretty standard procedure. We lived on a farm with old horse-drawn equipment converted to work on tractors. That stuff wasn't made to go three times faster than a horse could go. So it broke frequently. Well, there wasn't anybody to fix it but me because dad was a pipe fitter and worked on big construction jobs, so I had to figure out how to fix it so I could keep on doing, getting the work done. And dad was never pleased with the way I fixed it. So that's the environment with dad that I grew up with. At age 13, I was plowing a field one day. He came home from work, stopped in the lane coming up to the farm. I, I had just turned a corner and was heading across the furrow toward him. And I'm thinking, for once, Pop's going to be pleased. I got to the end of the furrow, popped the tractor in gear, jumped over off the tractor, walked over to Pop. He goes, well, kid, if you're going to plow it, you could have plowed it straight. And that was the day I went, I just clicked the switch. Didn't matter what he said after that, when he said it, how he said it, didn't matter. I just didn't hear it. I just jettisoned it until I became a Christian at 17. And then God began to change my heart from the inside out. But it was about 20, 15 years later when one day it dawned on me Pop had no idea how to be a dad. His dad had no time to be a dad. And that began to help me rethink about him and that relationship and look at it with understanding. That didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened because I became a Christian and it happened because a young couple took me under wing and began to mentor me, and began to show me 
What I'm talking about here, this young couple did with me. Many of these things. And that began to change my whole frame of reference in the way I looked at things, along with becoming a Christian and having a platform to synthesize it. Talking with your children at an age-appropriate level. Obviously, that goes, includes asking questions, expressing an interest in them, and clarifying your understanding with them. <coughs> well, my boy was about seven, maybe, maybe a six. He was playing in the creek on our property one day, and I was came out, and I don't know what he did, but he did something, and I corrected him, and he did not like that I corrected him. And I could see the veins on his neck puff up. He was so angry with me. And I just quietly looked at him, and I said, Son, you may be angry with me. That's okay. And you may tell me you're angry, and that's fine. But, son, you can't yell at me. Okay? He stood there for a little while, and finally went. I said, okay. And I just, I just dropped it at that point. Later on, we had a little chat, and I found out what he was angry about. Asking questions, clarifying, clarifying what the child is asking, clarifying what the child is saying. Make sure you know what he's thinking. Make sure you know what he's saying. Make sure he understands you. That's another important piece of keeping that connection. And obviously, listening. Hearing the heart, not just the words. What's behind in that child's mind and heart? What's going on with him? I'm using a lot of personal illustration because those are the ones I know best. We moved when he was... Uh, Seven, to Georgia from Pennsylvania. He had a friend that lived across the road from us, his age. Those two boys got along really well. They played really well. They were, they were genuinely friends at that age. When we moved, it was really hard for my son. He really missed that playmate of his. And there were a lot, of, a lot of times over the next year, I would ask him about how he's thinking about David. That boy's name was David. How do you think about David? How many times does, do you remember playing? Just get him to talk about it. Help him, help him review it and think about that, that relationship and be able to turn it loose. It's part of your history now. Listening to them. Participating. Doing with them in family activities. Keeping yourself involved with them and them involved with the family. Now, that's not hard when your children are this age. When they get to be teens, early teens, it starts to become more difficult. Because rightly so, they're beginning to develop into friendships with other kids. But it's essential to stay connected, to participate, 
be with them. Engaging, that is being involved in their activities. Participating with them in family activities and engaging with them in their activities. My daughter sitting over here, she has five children, four of them boys. They joke sometimes about the fact that for the youngest boy, sometimes the van was his home because they were so involved as a family with all the boys playing sports. But they made it a family involvement. When one of them in T-ball went to South Florida or down in Florida from where we live in Alabama and Georgia, he was in Tennessee, they, they went down there for a T-ball tournament. These two ladies went down there and sat in the sun for three days for a T-ball tournament. They were engaging with those children in those activities. And then teaching, teaching the word and teaching the word by integrating it into the relevancy of life, not abstractly. And please, don't teach your kids Bible stories. Did that get your attention? <laughs> teach them historical narratives. Why? Because in our culture, a story means the figment of your imagination. Those are not figments of our imagination. Those are, those are historical narratives recorded for us in the Word of God. So teach them those narratives and frame them in cultural reality. Help them make the connection between that narrative in that framework, in that historical setting, to living in the culture you live in and that child lives in and that child has to relate to. Help them develop the transition and the connection. Too many children grow up knowing the Bible stories and they can tell them, but they don't see. I counsel with people, adults, people have been in church all their lives, 25, 35, 40 years old. I'll go back and pull a narrative out and use it to illustrate something, and it doesn't register. I have to go back like I would with my 12-year-old and walk them through and Help them see how to take the narrative and the principle involved in the narrative and integrate it into their life and implement it in their life. That's the way we need to teach our children growing up. <clears throat> Next one is helping. That includes Disciples, support, defense, both teaching them how to defend themselves and step in where they are vulnerable and help them. 
Help them think through the challenges of their life. Help them think through the difficult relationships that come up. Help them think through how to relate to a coach who's a bully. Sometimes you just have to remove them. But a lot of times it's better to be able to teach them how do you relate to that coach. Same way with the kid down the street who's the bully. How do you deal with that? Well, you can just pull them out and not ever let them see the kid. That's one way. But what, you might protect them in that, and on occasions that may be necessary. <clears throat> but in most instances, it's helping them learn how to deal with that situation. Now, that means you and I have to think through how to do it. Okay? And then evangelizing, purposely teaching the gospel to your children with appeal. Again, I'll use a personal illustration. When my daughter was five, I, had, I was planning a church at the time, and I had a summer intern living with us. And I had another intern the same summer who would drive in. He was married, so he would drive in every day. Those two guys, would, we'd meet at 9 in the morning. We'd have prayer, and they'd go out into the community visiting, passing out tracts, inviting people to the church and various uh, activities of the church. At noon, they'd come back to my house, and my wife would make lunch for us, and we'd sit around the table, and we'd talk about them. And we'd talk about what did they run into, how did they deal with it? Did anybody come to know Jesus? And, of course, my five-year-old daughter is sitting there at the table with us, day in and day out. Summer's over. She went to kindergarten. And in kindergarten, guess what? She tried to tell another girl about Jesus. And the, and the girl's response was, oh, that Jesus, he's a fool. And so she comes home and she says, Daddy, is there such a thing as a children's track? And I said, yes, sweetheart, I'll get some for you. Well, in those days, we didn't have the Internet. You know, you had to call in at best to make an order, and then it took who knows how long to get there. So for, we waited a couple of weeks for the children's tracks to show up. Almost every day, she'd ask, have they come yet? So one day they ask, have they come yet? And my wife's sitting there at a table by herself that day, and my wife looks at her and says, well, sweetheart, have you thought about that your heart is black and that you need Jesus to come into your life? And she was able to lead her to the, to the Lord as a result. So you expose your children two things that prepare them to be evangelized and then you look purposely for the opportunity to evangelize. Now you may catechize and that may be the way you do it and that's a good way but there's lots of other ways to do it. But we need to be as parents we need to be doing that and building that relationship and keeping that connection with our child while pointing them to Jesus and giving them an opportunity to come to know Jesus.
By the way, a couple of years later, my daughter was able to lead her younger brother to the Lord. That's the way we want to perpetuate these things in our families. Then once the evangelization takes over, then it's a discipleship process. Developing your children as disciples. You know, when, you, when, you, when you're discipling somebody, you build a kind of special relationship with them. And it's true with your children. You build a kind of special relationship in the process of doing that discipling work. And then finally, there is the modeling. By your living. Anybody ever hear the, the, the name Jack Wurtson? Any, anybody? Nobody. That's a shame. <laughs> There's one. Jack Wurtson was a band leader back in the 40s someplace and got converted and became an evangelist and built a very wonderful camp in Adirondack Mountains of New York called Word of Life and has pr produced lots of good fruit out of that, that camp and later a, a one-year Bible college uh, transition year for, for young students out of college. Jack Wurchin made rather, it was kind of his famous little uh, statement he used it a lot. If you don't walk the talk, don't talk the walk. Okay? Well, I think that that's very true in parenting. If you're going to talk the walk, then walk the talk. Model for your children. I mentioned a young couple, they were just, I was 17, they were 27 when I came to Christ. That young couple, no sponsorship, did it on their own. Started a Bible study for teens. When I was attending, now not everybody came every week, when I was attending as a teen, there were 125 kids they were reaching. They talked it, and they walked it, and they walked it, and they talked it. And they influenced a lot of people. Years later, in Greenville, South Carolina, I did his funeral. There were well over 100 people that drove down from Pennsylvania to come to his funeral, and almost all of them had been in that teenage club. Okay. <clears throat> Deliver all of the above in the context of loving, caring, and affectionate relationships. Touching. Every day, multiple times a day, Touch that child, whether he's two years old or whether he's 15 years old. 
You touch differently, but touch, physically touch. Pat on the back, a tassel of the hair, a tickle of a rib with an affectionate word. Very, very important. I don't have the research in front of me, and I'm not going to try to tell you what it says accurate, because I can't give it to you accurately without having it at my fingertips. But there's really good research regarding the value, the necessity of touch regularly in people's lives. It's also a matter of touching with your eyes. May not think about that. Some of the <clears throat> some of the neurobiological information today is kind of interesting. But you 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 see somebody, watch somebody, connect with them intensely over a period of two or three minutes. You make a a connection as strong or stronger than you do when you're able to touch somebody. I was telling my wife about that piece of information, I, and I had a laugh. I said, boy, all of a sudden, now for those of you who have no idea what, what a DP is, I'll have to explain it, but at Bob Jones, we had what we called the DP, the dating parlor. The whole top floor of the student union building, which was about as big as this room is long and then maybe a half again that wide, all couches and chairs where you could go and sit and talk with each other with a chaperone at the other end of the room. Now you might think, oh my goodness, that doing that in college? Think what you want, but here's my point. I said to her, I said, no wonder we left Bob Jones two by two. There was a lot of staring, communication, <laughs> biological connecting. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it, it's, it's really important to make those kinds of connections. Now, when you make those kinds of connections, when you're building into this child every day of his life, you're building into that child a confidence in who he is, who she is, made in God's image with all of those connections that they need to be able to live effectively, grow up effectively, and relate to others effectively. That, in my opinion, is the best way you go about raising a gender-stable child, or a drug-free child, or an alcohol-free child, or a illicit sex-free child. Building those kinds of relationships. <clears throat> this is Califano's book some of his research. <clears throat> There's one chart he has in there. The little, short, dark orange on the chart riser there, <clears throat> that shows uh, 
five to seven dinners weekly. The yellow shows only two to five dinners weekly. And basically what he said, what, it's, what that chart says is, if a family has dinner together just two nights a week, they will be Well, the first one is 1.5 less times to be involved in drugs or alcohol or, or other illicit activity. Whereas if they have eat together five to seven times weekly, look at how much it drops. Just meeting around the table five to seven nights a week as a family lowers considerably the chances of that person going off the rails. I don't know about what you find in your ministries. What I find is families that never have a meal together. Every night, they're going their several ways. Particularly during the teenage years. Just two nights a week makes a difference. Five nights a week makes a big difference. <clears throat> this illustrates but only scratches the surface of engaging all ten strategies, enhances the prospect of children choosing biblical values of lifestyle, morals, values, and gender affirmation. I'm not going to have time to walk through it, obviously. You just show me a sign. I've got less than five minutes left. But I'm going to turn your, your attention back and ask you, please, go back and consider carefully Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. That's not just a discipline chapter. That chapter is teaching you as Moses was teaching Israel, this is how you transfer the faith from one generation to the next. Read through that chapter and think through, okay, how do I adapt the principle here that he's enunciating in my environment? You're not going to walk around with a phylactery around your forehead. Okay? But you can have a plaque in your house. This is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice in it, whatever it may be. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org.
Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.